The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do give thanks to you for being a shepherd to us, your people. For being our guide, our leader, for promising to bring us home. But there was a line in that song that we just sang about tears in our eyes now. And that also is a reality. You are a shepherd leading your people home with tears in our eyes often. We walk following you through a world that is broken, with lives that are plagued, sorrowing, rejoicing, but also sorrowing. We sing of you as our song. We celebrate. We have much to be thankful for. And there is also heartache. As we look at your word today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to look at the heartache, to look at the tears in a way that leaves us, your people here, rejoicing. It helps us to look at the heartache in life and to see it on the, the grand scheme, to see it in the big picture you, a gracious King, leading us home. Help us to sing with tears in our eyes. Lord, use your word for that this morning. I pray that you would clear out of us, out of our minds and hearts, out of my mind, out of my heart, clear away distraction. Help us to focus and to listen pray that you would clear away sin, help us to be humble and receptive. Or those here who, who don't know you, if there are some here who don't know you, you speak in a winsome and inviting way and show yourself to be the only shelter and the only refuge, a rock like no other, and call them to yourself. We look to you, Lord, and ask you to lead us, ask you to shepherd us, ask you to raise us up. Do that this morning through your word, I pray, Father, by the power of your spirit, make it happen that the Son would be honored and that we, your people, would be grown. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. Amen. turn our attention this morning to the second chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. We began 1 Samuel a few weeks ago as we met a righteous woman named Hannah. And there, Hannah had a problem. As it's presented to us, she was faithful to the Lord, and her problem was that though on the one hand she was faithful to the Lord, 
righteous in, in the covenant with him. On the other hand, she lacked the full experience of a very important blessing that should have been hers as a faithful one to the covenant. She lacked the blessing of children, especially sons. And that, that tension there is, is grievous to her, especially because she has a rival who constantly rubs it in. And so finally, brokenhearted, she goes to the Lord and pours out her heart before him and pleads, would you resolve this tension, Lord? I'm faithful to you. Would you give me the full experience of the covenant? And he hears and he answers and he does. Gives her a son. But she asked for that son explicitly, says it in verse 11, and then again at the end of the chapter, explicitly intending to give him back to the Lord in service. And so the Lord gives explicitly, expecting to receive. And that was the point for us last week. We too, God's people, in covenant with him, and yet as we look around, lacking, often lacking the full experience of all the covenant blessings that he has bought for us in Christ, we, like Hannah, should cry out and say, Lord, resolve this tension. Bring the fullness of your blessing to us that we may return it back to you. Give to us your blessing that we may pass it on and bless others with it. Mature us so that matured we may move on and impact a world for you. Blessed to be a blessing. Given that we might give. That was the point last week for us. We, we should long for ever-increasing conformity to His image, ever-increasing depth of maturity, that we may give back ourselves consecrated to Him, to hallow His name, to bring His kingdom as it should be here in this earth. So we looked at in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2, come to the point where Hannah has just given back Samuel, her son, to the Lord, and she turns to pray. And so the text of her prayer, verses 1 to 10, is our text this morning. That's what we're going to be looking at. She is rejoicing and mostly declaring things. There's, there's a hint of petition all throughout, but mostly she's declaring things about God. She turns to him and she prays, and what that prayer teaches us, and let me put it in a sentence here, this is kind of my main point for this morning. The prayer that, that uh, we're going to develop this morning teaches us this. Because the Lord will raise us up tomorrow, we can rejoice and rest in him today. That's the point I'm working towards this morning. Because the Lord will raise us up tomorrow, we can rejoice and rest in Him today. And the the two main pieces of that are the the raising up and the rejoicing. He's going to raise us up, and so we should rejoice. That's what I'm working towards. Let me read the text. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, 
but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Prayer. The prayer begins with Hannah talking about herself. Her heart exalts with a you. That is, it rejoices, it delights in the Lord. In the next line, then, her strength is exalted, it's with an A, that is, lifted up or raised up. And that last phrase there, her strength exalted, there are two words there that are repeated again in verse 10, forming a, a back end, a bookend to this. Here, her strength, literally the word is horn, a symbolic word for strength or dignity or honor. Here, her strength is lifted up, and at the end, the anointed's strength or power horn is lifted up. So both ends. Hannah has seen it in her own life, and she's looking forward to it in the life of the anointed, in the life of the king. This is the period of the judges. There is no king in the land yet. But she knows they need one, and she's looking for it to come. And that then, strength lifted up, especially the lifted up part, becomes the theme throughout this whole psalm. Prayer. Last week, the, the main idea was the idea of asking. Well, the main verb in this week's text is this lifting up or raising up. It's in 1 and in 10. It's also in verses 7 and 8. And there's another verb, different verb, translated raised up or lifted up in verse 6. And so the idea throughout is of the Lord raising up, the Lord exalting, lifting up that which is down and lowly. And conversely, taking down that which is high and mighty. So verses 2 and 3 talk about who this Lord is, who will do that, gives his identity. And the arrogant, it says, verse 3, had better watch out. For he is the God of knowledge. And in a phrase that's kind of difficult, the language is a little difficult there, but the ESV reads, by him actions are weighed. I think there's probably a better way that should be expressed, but the main point is, He is the God of knowledge. He is the God who weighs, who understands actions, His actions, His deeds. Could be even translated, His alarming deeds. Like those that follow. Breaking the bow of the mighty and strapping on strength of the feeble, etc., who can understand his ways? Who can understand how it is and when it is that he decides to tear down and to lift up? 
God alone does. He understands it. He alone is God. The end of verse 8 reminds us of an elemental truth as to why he's God. He's the creator. The pillars of the earth on which he sets the world, obviously figurative language. The Bible, biblical writer does not believe the earth is set on a pillar. The pillars of the earth belong to him. He made it all. He's God. So then, 9 and 10 come back to encouragement and warning. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. And the turn here, the turn now to a moral description, faithful ones and wicked, reveals something to us. All all throughout, he's had the the high, the the strong, the full, the one with many children, and then the low, the, the weak, the poor, the hungry, the broke. He's had this, these two categories here, and when he turns to a moral, faithful, and wicked, it reveals that all throughout, he has not been talking about just some random strong person or some random weak person. Hannah's enemies in verse 1, the arrogant and the proud in verse 3, and then in 9, the faithful and the wicked. He's got moral categories here. And all throughout, when you line up these two sides of the, the strong and the weak, the one with children without, etc., he's talking about God's people and those who are not God's people. In Hannah's day and all throughout history, inevitably, faithfulness to the Lord leaves one lowly on the outside looking in at a world that is set against him and therefore works, functions with a system that's set against him. So Hannah's talking about all throughout here how God's going to deal with two groups of people, God's people and those who are not God's people, the high and the low. And one day, God will put the shoe on the other foot. Right now, the whole thing works one way, but it's not going to be that way forever. God will reverse the fortunes in all of the earth when he brings his king. Where it ends, verses 9 and 10. He will give strength to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed And in grand manner, one day, just like Hannah experienced just a little bit in her life, one day, everything will be different. And he will raise up his lowly ones. He's the Lord, and he will do it. That's her prayer. Her declaration. Her praise of God and her hope for God to bring that. We're going to explore what it teaches us about the Lord who raises us up by breaking it into two observations, as usual. So we begin by considering God. The place we must always begin when we start to live with God. Life starts there. We have to start there with God. Who is He? And here we see Hannah sing and pray and declare that the Lord is the holy, sovereign, 
over all the affairs of life. The Lord is the holy sovereign. Phrase I'm borrowing from somewhere else, but it comes right out of the text. He is the holy sovereign over all the affairs of life. Over the affairs of your life, over mine, over ours together, over everything that happens everywhere. He is the sovereign over all of the creation. And He is the Lord. It's written repeatedly in this prayer in all capital letters because it is His name. It is His proper name, Yahweh, as He introduced Himself to Moses way back. He is the one, literally means, the one who is. He is the I am. He is the only one who is. Verse 2, there is none. A word repeated three times in that verse. There is none, 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 none holy like Him. He stands alone, or rather, He sits enthroned all alone. That's, that's the emphasis of that word holy. It's less about moral purity, though that would be included. It's, it's holiness is less about moral purity than it is about separateness, about uniqueness, difference from, otherness. The Lord, He is unique, set apart, distinct. There is none besides Him. There are not multiple gods arranged in some hierarchy. There are not different gods in different places for different people to worship. There are not different gods who have created different planets and become gods over them. There is only one true God and He sits enthroned over everything that is anywhere. The one who is and there is no rock, no shelter like Him anywhere. He is set apart, holy, Holy, holy is the name, is the Lord. He's a God of knowledge, verse 3. By whom and by whom alone His actions are understood. His deeds are weighed by Him. His ways are not our ways. His plans are higher than ours. They are inscrutable to us. He alone looks into them. He alone plans them. He alone understands them. He alone carries them out. He has made and He governs the world as He pleases. He is the sovereign that is the great ruler. He is the creator and sustainer of all the world. The pillars, that is the very foundation on which everything exists and is held up, and by which it is held up. He made them, He holds them. Everything that is, is set up by His command, it exists by His will, and it comes to an end when He says so. He kills, and He gives life. A phrase repeated throughout the Bible to emphasize that the power of life itself rests in one hand in the universe. Not in a doctor's hand, not in a nutritionist's hand, 
Not in a sports medicine exercise. In his hand. And when he says, done, we are done. When he says, live, we live. We draw breath in this moment because he's decided so, and when he decides not, we won't. He alone holds the right to judge the fate of men and women and boys and girls on earth. He is God, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Creator, sustainer, and in His right timing, in awesome and perhaps even in alarming ways, He ends and He casts down. And we are not at all accustomed to thinking of Him like this. You Perhaps, if, you, if you've been here long enough, you are accustomed to hear me talk about Him like this. That's different than us being accustomed to thinking of Him like this. We human beings, me, you, all of us, we like our gods domesticated, controllable. We like our gods to be like us. In fact, some religions officially say that we humans become our gods. It's official in some religions. It's unofficial in every religion. Every religion on the earth is a god created by us in our image. Because we want gods like that. We do not want... We fundamentally, we humans do not want a God that is high and exalted and in authority over us. It's frightening. But there is none holy like the Lord, none beside Him. It should be clear to us when we bump into our finite knowledge, and it should be clear to us when we bump into our finite bodies, and it should be clear to us as we watch ourselves decay. I'm watching the Olympics, for goodness sakes. I'm watching the Olympics, and they're talking about a 28-year-old swimmer at the Olympics over the hill. (laughs) The announcers are talking like she's 80 or something. Don't think she has enough left in the tank. (laughs) She's 28. But the fact is, you get crushed by the 20-year-old or the 17-year-old. How quickly, how quickly we fade. We're nothing. And we have a God over us who is everything. Who is and, and should be ever present in every moment over every detail, holding and and declaring, reigning over every little, over the drawing of my breath, over the working of my body. He is God. I lived in a country one time where there had been a significant, great, big, important ruler in their past, and on various holidays they hung up stories on, on city buildings, multiple stories, as in like, building stories, 
murals of this person. So you look at a 10-story building, and five stories would be a great big picture of him. And that one, too. You could stand in a center, a city, a city center square, and you could see 10 of these looking around. And on every denomination of currency, every bill and every coin, his picture. And in every home, public place, his picture. A society that says, this is our revered leader. And we put him here and here and here and here and here and here and there, everywhere. That guy's dead. And knowing something about him is dead and in condemnation for eternity. And we have a God who is not dead, who always is the I Am, who lives forever, reigns over everything, and we are so accustomed to to forgetting Him. That, That is wrong. He is the sovereign, holy, holy, holy over all of our life. Now, look again at verse 1. May your heart, like Hannah's, exult in this Lord, with a you. Rejoice. Does that fit in your mind? How I've just been talking, what I've just been explaining about him, and then is that a like fifth gear to first gear or vice versa shift? How do we get rejoice twice in verse one before Hannah? I didn't make all that stuff up. I was repeating and elaborating on what Hannah said, coming out of her rejoicing heart. She says it twice there in verse one. And if you look back in the previous chapter, what was she doing there? She's worshiping, rejoicing before the Lord. She brings a triple offering because she wants to offer a pleasing aroma to Him. She's so delighted three times over. She's exuberant before this holy sovereign. That's how you should be struck. That's how this holy sovereign should sit on you. Holy, 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 the one who reigns over all of life for your joy. Those things go together explicitly here. She has a sober-minded, holy joy, just like we should. And we're going to talk in just a moment about why. But I want to pause right here because I have to point out, it's it's about rejoicing. And so I want to say to you, rejoice in this Holy Sovereign. However, that's not possible if you are one of his adversaries. We'll talk in a moment about why this Lord leads to rejoicing. But while Hannah's focusing on that, she also laces throughout this prayer warning So verse 3, and I ask, is this you? Teenager, is this you? Adult. 
Verse 3, the Lord alone is God. He is holy. He alone holds, holds knowledge and works out His will in mysterious ways. So, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. This is plural. She's looking at a group of people again. The one half of this ledger is the people of God, and the other half is those who are his adversaries. The one that God acts against to break their bows, because, verse 9, not by might shall a man prevail. No amount of human power can save a person. When it comes time to stand before God at the judgment, the text tells us that on His appointed day, He will thunder in heaven and break His adversaries into pieces. Cut them off from life and bring them down to death and darkness forever. There is no rejoicing in that. Only sorrow and terror. And it is frighteningly true and irresistibly coming in that great day when he sends his empowered king, his anointed. The word there is Christ, Messiah. There is a day appointed when he will send his Messiah in power with authority to judge all of the earth. And in that day, who can stand? All of his adversaries will be broken. So I ask, is that you? And hear this right now. That day is not yet. It's not yet. It's coming, but it's not yet. There is still today... A time to flee from that wrath to come. Jesus himself told us that he came the first time not to condemn the world, not to bring the wrath of God, but he came to save a world that already is condemned. We're born enemies of his, and he came to save, not to condemn. Ironically, the only place to flee from the wrath that is coming is to this same God who is a rock like no other A shelter like no other shelter. The only shelter that can resist that coming wrath. There's great irony in that. The place you flee to from God is God. Offered now in a Savior. So hear this. There is an offer on the table in front of you. If you are in fact now one of his adversaries, there is an offer on the table in front of you. And the Bible says, in effect, that the only way that you will ever face and endure the wrath of God is by rejecting the love of God. He lays out in front of you, He offers a Savior in love to His adversaries, arrogant, standing against Him. He offers, He lays out a Savior, came to die on a cross to pay for sin. In mercy and in grace, He says, Here it is. And the only way you will experience the crushing wrath is if you say, I reject that offer of mercy and love and grace. Will you reject love? Will you reject mercy? I hope not. 
Embrace this Savior, this rock, because a day is coming. And as it says, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, and none of their power will matter. Come and find joy, like Hannah, and Christian, like you. Or at least a joy like you should be embracing and that you should be walking in. So, to help us get there, let's consider what it is that Hannah has in mind that allows her to rejoice as she considers this Lord. That's the second point. So the second observation. This Lord raises up His lowly ones. This Lord raises up his lowly ones. We're asking why Hannah rejoices and why we should rejoice, and she tells us in verse 1. So let's trace the the thought through verse 1 then. The first phrase, or four phrases there, the first phrase, the first line of that verse says that she exalts or she rejoices in the Lord. And the second one, He has raised up her horn. Her her strength has been raised up in him. So if, if that was all, that would make perfect sense. He has raised up her dignity and honor and strength, given her Samuel, the son, and so she's thankful, she rejoices. If that was it, that would make perfect sense, but it continues on. The third line, third phrase, she derides or as the NAS puts it, speaks boldly against her enemies. Again, plural there. So she has in view a whole bunch of people who are enemies, which is not hard to imagine in the time of the judges. She's a righteous person. A whole bunch of people out there who aren't. She speaks boldly against her enemies. The conflict is still going on. They are still her enemies. They don't cease to become her enemies. It's continual. And she speaks boldly, not as a defeated and downcast one, but as a lifted up and rejoicing, exultant one. Why? Fourth line, because I rejoice in your salvation. Her attitude in the struggle that's against her enemies, it's ongoing, is one of an uplifted one rather than a downcast one, uplifted, walking in triumph for, because, she's rejoicing in his salvation. The salvation that she has seen, Samuel, and the salvation that she sees, all the following verses. He raised me up, follow the thinking here, He raised me up right then because He is a God of upraising, which means He will raise me up and one day bring His raised up King. So how should I walk right now? As raised up and as going to be raised up. I will speak to my enemies, not as a downcast one, but as a raised up one. That's her attitude. And you have to follow that 
Because that's where you come in. Christian, you are a lowly one. Faithful and lowly and in need of his salvation, in need of his raising up. Think of the ways. This is a fallen world. And it will be a fallen world until it's over. It's a fallen world spiritually. It's set against Christ spiritually. And therefore often physically and materially. We have a different allegiance, a different perspective, a different pattern of life. We're we're on a journey towards a different kingdom, a different land. And the more faithfully we embrace that and, and look towards that and walk towards that and live as sojourners here, refusing to buy land and settle down in this place, the more we do that, the greater of a break there will be between us and all who are around us. A disconnect. We'll be marked out as odd and sometimes even as accusatory. And physically and tangibly, materially, politically, philosophically, we are different and are therefore going to be left on the outside looking in, often. Not 100% of the time, not as bad as it could be. And in this country, we still have a little bit of a, of a Christian legacy that protects us somewhat. You look at the Chick-fil-A stuff going on right now, and you see it eroding before our eyes. I mean, do you see it eroding before our eyes? Other places, other times, it never existed, or it's been gone forever. Christians across time and around the globe, and we should expect going forward, will find ourselves physically, materially, concretely, very tangibly, set outside of a world whose power corridors and financial corridors are lined with people who agree, and we don't. Some of you experience that. Some of you who have lived in other countries have experienced that very clearly. I speak of those of our brothers and sisters here from the Sudan. You get what I'm talking about. Some of us Americans are wondering what I'm talking about as we we have kind of a comfortable society. You understand what I'm talking about. Materially and physically, we are lowly on the outside, but move it in a level. A number of us suffer and struggle under the impact of particular people's sins. Other people impacting you. Spouses or ex-spouses, parents, friends, people who used to be friends, relatives. Some of us suffer from Disease, affliction, disability. We are living in a world that is cursed. Apart from the world system, we're living in a world in which we are still physically broken and other people are still sinners. 
And that impacts us. Walk through your life. Look at the suffering. I can look at you. I mean, I look at you. I can see your faces. And I don't know all the details of all your lives, but I know some of the details of some of your lives. And we could write down, could we not, the ways that you were downcast and lowly because you live in this world. And have suffered at other people's hands. Or have suffered just disease and brokenness or accident. And you are not strong and lifted up, but are cast down and broken. But move it in another level to us ourselves personally, spiritually speaking, we are even more lowly still because we are the covenant people of God and still lack the full experience of the covenant blessing in here. We talked about this last week some, but are you in touch with this need? Are you, are you aware of your lowliness as you struggle with your own sinful fallenness? We fight against the fallen flesh of our hearts. We are not what we want to be. The things we do not want to do, we do anyway. And kick ourselves over it. Grieved and broken, yet doing it again. The fear we don't want to be controlled by, we have it. The times of deep intimacy with God that we long for and love, they are fleeting and they pass away. Though we'd like to hold them, they run through our fingers and they're gone. Don't you wish you could talk and walk with God in the cool of the day and be near and intimate with Him all the time and have Him fill your heart and change your desires and and take away your temper and remove the lust from you and, and stop that complaining spirit and remove the worry and the selfishness and give to you a loving nature that you would be kind and gracious to your spouse and your loved ones and give you self control and joy and rest and peace and hope. But it's not there. It's not there. And you wish it was, but it isn't. And you fight for tomorrow, but it's gone again. Understand, I'm not chastising you here. I'm trying to to pull out some of our sorrows that I share with you. I'm not chastising you. I'm trying to point out our pain. We were made for, we have been saved for more, and we don't walk it, we don't know it, we suffer under it. We're still perishable. Still dishonorable. Still in natural bodies, to use 1 Corinthians 15's language. Fallen in sin and struggling for holy joy and grieved by the fact that we cannot walk like we want to walk. Sorrowful that sanctification is so slow and that consecration is so frightening. Ashamed that we hold ourselves back. If you look at all of this, if you look at the battle and the lowliness and the sorrow and the failure in here, and then out here from how the world and other people impact you, and then at a world system that's set against us, it should break your heart. It should break your heart. It should leave you weeping and mourning. 
Do you cry in this sometimes? Do you weep in this sometimes? Well, we should sorrow and we should be ever rejoicing because there is really good news. Hannah looks out at her enemies, and they are still her enemies. They are still there. The proud and the arrogant and the wicked are still all over the place. This is the period of the judges. And she speaks over them as a lifted up one, rejoicing, rejoicing. Christian. You are his beloved one, a faithful one, and he is a rock for you like none other. That's true. He is a rock for you like none other. None, none, none. There is none. Him. And he is sure to save you because on you he has set his love There's a wonderful reality here. It it is easy and, and it is appropriate on the one hand to look out and to look in and see the glass as half empty. And it is also necessary to look out and look in and see the glass as half full. Both at the same time. Because the glass is half full. And filling. And filling. His salvation has already come to you, Christian. He has already set his love on you, already raised you up from the dust, from the ash heap, already. He already dwells within you, already is at work to change you. And while you're not changing as fast as you like and you still see the plague, you're different. He is with you. He is at work. While the times with Him fleet, they do come. He is your God and you are His own treasured possession. And so we should find ourselves right in Hannah's place, looking out at enemies but rejoicing and therefore speaking and living and walking among them not as a downcast, crushed one, but there should be, Christian, there should be a hopeful lightness to your step, a a sober joy. Right now. And then we should also grasp Hannah's perspective as one of looking forward Because she knows more is coming. Now, when exactly will he break the bow of the mighty? Who knows? His ways are inscrutable. Why does God decide to deliver the good guard Mordecai and not countless other Christians who are martyred? Who knows? Who knows? But there is a coming day when he will send his king And in power, he will break every mighty bow. We know that. That day is coming. 
And that's her ultimate hope. She looks ahead to a time. The end, of this, the end of this prayer here is laced with the time of the judgment. There's a time coming when he will come. And he will come as Messiah, no longer lifted up humbly to die. But he will come lifted up on the clouds, commanding the host of heaven. And you, his lowly one, will be lifted up from the dust. And what was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor will be raised honorable. Sown a spiritual body will be raised, a mortal body will be raised a spiritual body. That will be a glorious day. And it is coming. It is coming. He is coming for you, his bride. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He loves you with an everlasting love and will not let you be taken from him. And because of that, Live now in the conflict which is raging. Live now in the conflict as a raised up one. Say to your soul, you got to talk to yourself. Say to your soul like the psalmist, Why so downcast, O my soul? Soul, put your hope in God. You hear the psalmist telling himself what to do. I'm drifting. I'm downcast. Whoa, why? Uh, I guess it's because my hope is not in this holy sovereign, but in something else that's failing me. Put your hope in God. I will yet see Him, my God and my salvation. Cast all your anxiety on Him, resting and rejoicing and looking for the great day of His King. Because that day is coming tomorrow, today you can live resting in joy. That is good news. That is good news, Christian. So walk with Him. Rejoice with Him. Do you? It's fascinating to stand here and look out at people. I can predict who's asleep. I can predict who checked out 20 minutes ago, unfortunately. But I believe and I hope that some of you actually are tracking with this and are seeing a path opening up to your joy that does not involve denial. You realize that's how we acquire joy often. Work's terrible, so I forget about it and I go somewhere else. That's still there. I'm just denying it. That's the only thing available to us apart from Christ. 
There's a path opening up to you here for joy that says you can look at and stand right in the middle of all that yuck and speak over it as a victor. May God bless you by making that clear and drawing you to it. Let me pray. Father, Father, You are the Holy Sovereign over all the affairs of life. And because of that, we know that You have the ability and we know that You have the inclination to lift up us, Your lowly ones. In fact, You must because You are holy. You cannot abandon those of us who stand righteous before You because of Christ. You must lift us up. Thank you. Thank you. So I pray, Lord, show us. Show us the places in life right now where the things of sorrow dominate and our hope is not set on you. Point out for your people here a pathway to joy, delight. Move them to walk it. Meet them on it. And Lord, we pray along with Hannah. We know there's a day when you will lift up the horn of your Messiah. You will give strength to your great King. Bring that day, we pray. Thank you for being our God by your will, not by ours. Thank you for being our God. Be our Savior today, I pray. And as we take in our hands the the communion elements now, would you remind us, help us to treasure the cross and what you did on it, paying for sin. You are a rock like no other, a Savior and a shelter. And we say thank you. Help us to know it and to rejoice in it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.